Good morning, everyone. I feel the need this morning to just divert my attention, your attention, uh, to something different. Um, The uniqueness of Holy Scripture. If I had a lion and I was uh, to put it on a lead and walk through the streets of your town or village, it would certainly cause a stir, I've no doubt about that. But one thing I would never need to do would be to defend it. If for whatever reason the lion was attacked, all I would need to do is to let it go and it would defend itself. Dear child of God, we do not need to defend our Bible. It is divinely able to defend itself because it is the very breath of the Almighty. We just need to speak it, write it or whatever and it will defend itself and will always be victorious. Authorities and powers over the centuries have banned it, burned it, blurred it and sought to undermine this precious book in every possible way but they have totally failed. The world over, millions upon millions of people have been and are continuing to be eternally blessed by hearing and believing the message of this precious book. So I would just like for a few minutes and in a very simple and elementary way speak about the uniqueness of God's written word, the Holy Scriptures. This hopefully will be of particular benefit to any new believers listening or indeed anyone not so familiar with the Bible and to anyone who has doubts about the divine inspiration of this precious book that we hold in our hands and privileged to have in our own language. Some people have suggested that there are other books that are missing from our Bibles. Well, that's not true. And there are those who have inserted those writings. The Bible is a complete volume of 70 books, which is the number we would expect as 70 as a divine number throughout Scripture in connection with regard to a completeness in God's dealing with us. You may say that there are 66 books. Well, of course, that's what I always used to think. Well, actually, if you take the book of Psalms, it's actually five books in itself, which, of course, corresponds to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So if you look at it in that way, there are actually 70 books. There are those that suggest that the Bible has mistakes in it. And there have been, of course, some mistakes in translation. However, reliable translations, such as the King James Version, have corrected them in the text and in the margin, or in the margin. Sadly, many modern versions cannot be relied upon. Uh, They're paraphrases rather than direct and genuine, clear uh, translations. In other words, they're what men believe the scriptures mean. And that differs, of course, according to who's actually writing the uh, so-called translation. However, the original scripture manuscripts themselves are totally inerrant and infallible. This is why it's so very important to read a reliable version. Every word of scripture, every tense of every word, every single jewel and plural of words, even every letter of every word is inspired. For instance, Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 says, Seed not 
seeds. Every number in Scripture bears a significance. The whole and every part of the whole is absolutely perfect, even as the divine author is perfect, which of course is what we would expect. As we bow before its divine authorship, we begin to grasp something of the intrinsic beauty, wonder and perfection of this precious treasure we are privileged to hold in our hands. Please observe and remember that God's plans and purposes cannot and will not ever be thwarted. His promises are certain, sure and totally reliable. We use the word Amen as a matter of request when we pray, and it means let it be so. However, God also uses the same word when he makes promises. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, The promises of God are yea and amen. But with God it obviously isn't a request, rather it's a statement, a command even. Let it be so. And in the divine purpose it is already done. Nothing and no one can alter it. It's the same word the Lord Jesus uses in John's Gospel when he says, Verily, verily, literally means truly, truly, or amen, amen, it's the same word. Something we can totally rely upon and trust. In these matters particularly, we have a double affirmation. What we need to grasp hold of is that the the God in whom we've put our trust is eternal. Therefore, his promises are as good as done, because they are history written beforehand. There are no afterthoughts with God. He knows and has planned the end from the beginning. In 2 Timothy, Paul reminds us that God has saved and called us according to his own purpose and grace, which has been given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. This is beyond the human mind to comprehend, but we apprehend it. We might not comprehend it, but we apprehend it. That is, we lay hold of it by faith. Our salvation is eternal in that it has an eternal origin and an eternal future. What confidence and assurance this brings then to our hearts. It has long been a source of argument and debate, but I can't understand why. Are we so arrogant to think we must understand before we believe? How can we possibly fully understand the ways and thoughts of God? Actually, Scripture states in both Old and New Testament that we need to simply believe. Isaiah chapter 55 says, As the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 11, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Why can't we then be satisfied to simply bask in the sunshine of such a wonderful fact that our salvation is eternal? Nothing can take us out of the hand of the Lord Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never, never, never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. And my Father which gave them me is greater than all, and none can pluck them out of his hand.
So this book is totally unique in that it is God's revelation to mankind. It tells us about himself, about Jesus the Saviour, about Satan and the powers of darkness, about ourselves and our need of salvation, about life and death, about heaven and hell, about what has happened and about what's going to happen, about the purpose of life and the emptiness of a life without God. It's a light in the darkness, a counsellor in every decision, a comfort in sorrow, a rebuke when we sin, a strength to the weary, a companion to the lonely, a solace to the dying, etc., etc., etc. The Holy Scriptures tell us everything we need to know about life and living. They tell us how things began and how they will end. They tell us what our God has done, is doing now, and what he's about to do. The Bible tells us the life stories of men and women subject to like passions as we are. It doesn't pretend that the great men and women of Scripture were perfect. It reveals the whole person, warts and all. With reference to prophetic matters, there are approximately 2,500 prophecies in Scripture, of which about 2,000 have already been fulfilled to the letter. This surely gives us every good reason to believe and expect the others also to be fulfilled perfectly. I mentioned that numbers in Scripture have significance. So what about the numbers in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1? Five women mentioned, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba and Mary. The number five in Scripture generally is the number associated with human weakness overshadowed by divine grace. It's not my purpose to examine those five now, but what an incredible list they are. How beautifully our New Testament begins with the genealogy and incarnation of our glorious God and Saviour and the undeserved favour of God bestowed upon such individuals as we see in those five women. In this genealogy we see, in every situation and through the most unlikely people, God's will and design continues to be fulfilled and the line of the coming Messiah preserved and unbroken. And we could go on. There are eight men singled out in a special way in that genealogy. Jacob, Judah, Salmon, Boaz, David, Josiah, Jeconiah and Joseph. The number eight in scripture is usually associated with new beginnings and new creation, as you would expect. The eighth day is the beginning of a new week. When we think in general terms of the millennia of this world, the fifth was when divine grace was manifest in the coming of Christ and the age of the gospel, which has continued right up to this present day. Like in the days before the flood, God's grace to a wicked world was extended in the years of the longest living man, Methuselah, whose name means when he is dead, the flood will come. It doesn't say the flood. It says when he is dead, it will come. And that was, we know, the very year he died, the flood came. Genesis chapter 5. The seventh day will be the day of rest. That messianic kingdom, that messianic uh, rule of the Lord Jesus, when the earth will be liberated and the groaning creation emancipated. And the eighth day, so to say, will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein 
dwells righteousness. So here in Matthew chapter 1, if we go there again, we have these eight men, new beginnings at the outset of our New Testament. We see a picture of what God has in mind. New creation, new covenant, new commandment, new life, new man, new song, new Jerusalem, new heavens and new earth. How wonderful. So these brief comments aren't even an attempt at giving a conclusive explanation of what the Bible is. It is simply a desire in my heart this morning to put into your heart a deep love, respect and reverent awe at the privilege we have of having this message that God has spoken to his creation in our hands in the form of our Bibles. I trust that these thoughts will just stir up your heart this morning and be a blessing to you. God bless you.